you don't get a practice at minus 30 degrees where your dexterity and your hands are just crippling to the point that you can literally just screw your your carabiner um you know your your mask is completely choked with with um with the saliva that's coming out of your mouth that's getting frozen and you're trying to break the ice off the inside of your nose is tore to shreds with um frostbite and the goggles are, are steaming up that you can just you're just cleaning these little circles to see out uh, and you're trying to do this uh, and and i've painted a very eerie picture but that's that's what it's like and and then and then it gets better as you get to the summit but you've got to climb through the storms in order to get to the top but that's life welcome to no finish line a podcast with john o'regan sponsored by great outdoors dublin Hello and welcome back to No Finish Line podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure. Or if this is your first listen, then welcome to the podcast. And I'm guessing I might have a few new listeners as my guest for this episode is one that I've been trying to get for quite a while because he's one that I want to listen to, so he's someone I tune into. Now before I start, the whole idea behind this podcast is to learn from people who have committed their life efforts towards exploring the boundaries of their own potential and in doing so, end up shifting what we understand to the potential of others. So hopefully you'll pick up something from this conversation today that will, I suppose, ignite that that flame inside you, that will get you doing something that you want to do. And for me, I'm fascinated and interested in those people that have a deep understanding of their own self and a deep commitment to what they do. Those that have served the apprenticeship rather than doing something just to be talking about it. These are the people that were doing it for the love of doing it, not just, as I said, so they can talk about it. And that's what this conversation's about today. We're talking about running a 10K so you can run a marathon, so you can run an ultramarathon. We're talking about swimming lengths of a swimming pool so you can feel comfortable taking on an open water swim so you can complete a Norman or whatever, swim the channel. We're talking about climbing a mountain so you can climb a bigger mountain. We're talking about doing the training so you can do the training, not just deciding to run an ultramarathon or climbing a mountain and suffering because of being untrained and inexperienced just so you can talk about it and post on Instagram. My guest for this episode is endurance athlete and I don't want to be pigeonholing him into any one category, but he is a K2 summiter and if you've any knowledge of mountaineering you'll know what that means my guest today is jason black from county donegal but the summiting of the mountain is only part of a story and to me his story is amazing and it's one that continues i think climbing k2 was a chapter and it was a chapter not at the end of the book i think this is one that's continuing so I'm not going to be able to list everything that he's done. We, we'll touch on a few things. He's done a lot of cycling. So I would encourage you to visit his website because I'm not going to go listing it all. And I think a lot of other podcasts have touched on that. His website is www.jasonblack.ie. And like I said, I've been waiting to have this conversation for a while. I'm looking forward to hear Jason share some of his insights. And I hope that everyone listening will take something away from this that will help them in some way. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Thank you very much for having me this evening. Now, before I, I start, I had Googled the 15 most dangerous sports in the world. Number 15 was street luge. And can you guess what number one was? 
I would say it's right up there on the summit of the great mountains in the world. Mountaineering, yeah. And number 11 was bullfighting. Now, I don't consider bullfighting a sport, and that got me thinking. Do you consider mountaineering a sport or a lifestyle? Oh, for me, it's a lifestyle. It's just, it's, it's who I am. It's, I can't, I can't take it out of my blood. It's, it's, it's my DNA. And, uh, you know, and, and I've heard people uh, talk about the trials and tribulations and the battles of witnessing and, and looking in at a big mountain and what we do. But for me, it's supposed to how I live my everyday life, my preparation, my training, my commitment, my journey. And I suppose the word I use very much as part of me, my exploration to find out who am I and, and, and how far can this magical, um, incredible body go and mind. You've kind of answered something I'm going to ask you now, but a question that's always asked exclusively to mountaineers is why do you climb? You don't ever hear that question asked to someone who's playing golf or football or tennis or whatever. But when you think about it, why do people do these activities? And why do people ask, why do we climb? Is it because it's so dangerous? No, there's two, two answers to that. Um, I can, it was part of my whole journey in life. Um, you know, I was chasing this, I suppose as an earlier athlete in life, I was chasing the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And I thought when I would get there that this pot of gold, which was made up of this magical climb and incredible summit, and it was filled with all the training and aspirations and everything that it took to get there. And when I get there, that the that the success at the, at the summit would be just the epitome of the whole jigsaw puzzle. And what I found was when I got there that the, the elation lasted for a couple of minutes. Uh, and then there was another summit. So I spent a lot of my earlier life chasing that, what I felt success was. Um, and then, you know, what I what happened to me in later in life, and I suppose that's the epitome of, of, of the journey um, in sport, in life, um, and the apprenticeship, as you spoke about, what I realized and I stumbled across was that all I was, my success, in essence, John, was just the ability to unlock more and to not realize what what my what my potential was. And all I am today is not a K2 summiter or Everest mountaineer or any of these things. All I am is just the walking epitome of opportunity and potential. And and I now today realize more than ever, and it's what I encourage people, is that there is no limit. There is no start line. There is no finish line. There is no summit. It's just this incredible journey in life. And I suppose we have this magical responsibility to to live and work on this apprenticeship and, and to hone and craft a, a skill that, that navigates us through this magical journey in life. And, and success is whatever your epitome of success is. And and for me, my success is my success, and, and it's, it's, it's at the same level as everybody else. I think what, what the mountains and what the apprenticeship has taught me is that I celebrate everybody's success on the same level today. You know, I'm no better or worse than anybody else. Uh, it's just my journey, and it's limitless, and it doesn't have a start line. It doesn't have a finish line until, I suppose, whatever day uh, the man above decides my, my number's up and, and I'm gone. And uh, I have this very deep-rooted uh, feeling, John, that you know that you know I've I've lived and I've spoke the words that you only live word you only live once and and we should enjoy that. And then I've got to the point that the fact is that you only die once and that you can live every minute of every day and every second of every of every year. And and what I'm doing today is I'm living every every second of this magical life that I've been given. And I don't know where it's going to end. And I suppose on a mountain like. K2, you face that fear and you probably come closer to death and you probably have, have witnessed it as well. So I suppose you're, yeah. in some ways, you're putting yourself closer to those boundaries. 
Yeah, look, I suppose we're, we're getting into an area that, that I never really speak too much about. Um, most of the podcasts I do is, is generalized um, dancing around the subject for, for the point, for the want of a word. Um, you know, when you take on a great 8,000 meter mountain and to put it in context, there's only 14 of them in the world. Um, you know, there's only 14,000 of the big boys out there and to have had a privilege to stand on the summit um, and be humbled uh, to have survived um, because that's all I was given was permission to survive. Um, the two biggest, K2 and Mount Everest, was was incredible. But it doesn't come, John, without its perils. You know, it doesn't come without its its scars. You know, um, to be here today to share the story is nothing short of being humbled um, because what you do witness is the, is the tragedy of loss of life. It's, you know, as a sports person, I have massive respect for sport across the board. And, um, but one thing I did realize as a, as a land-based athlete earlier in life is that when things do get tough and I don't make it to the next checkpoint or, you know, I, I have to pull over because I'm really hurt or I'm injured or I'm sick or whatever, I can put my hand up and, and somebody's coming to get me. Um, sadly, there's a point on, on an 8,000 meter mountain when you pass it, there's nobody coming to get you. And it, it, it bestows something in you as a human that you better be ready for. And, and your apprenticeship as, as an athlete. Um, and the apprenticeship is not only just as a, on the mountain, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly of life. All the battles that you've had to put up with, all the challenges that you've had to induce, uh, endure as a, as a young boy or as a, as a seasoned athlete as you go along, all comes down to this one moment in time. And you better, you better be ready because there is no safety net. The safety net on these mountains are gone once you pass a certain point. And, and the, the big mirror of, of you looking into your own eyes and realizing that the Sherpa that stands beside you is equally as perished as you are. And, and both of you are on a thin, thin thread to survival. And, and how do you deal with that at that moment in time? Yeah, as you said, you come face to face with yourself. And the more times you come face to face with yourself, the better you start to know yourself. Now, I'm sure you didn't go to K2 with the intention of not coming back and having summited Everest, although that being the highest mountain in the world, it would not be seen as a very technical from a climbing point of view. It's danger lying at the altitude. And to put that into perspective, I think there have been over or at least 4,000 successful summits of, actually they might not be successful summits, but 4,000 people have stood on the summit of Everest. 68 of those have been Irish. And a lot of those have been return visits as well. And there were 320 recorded successful summits of K2 when I looked it up. So there may have been another few since then. Uh, So 330 versus 4,000. And of that 330, only three Irish people have successfully got to the top of K2. And was two in the one month, which was yourself and, and Noel Hannah. So knowing K2 will be far more technical with the climbing, did you train different? And had you much previous experience on similar terrain? Yeah, so um, I'm going to talk about two things, how I prepared and then Everest and why I chose to climb Everest a different way to the commercial route that currently exists today and the tragedies that are happening on, on Everest at the minute, which is coming at the, at the mercy of um, greed and... and um, and bastardization of the mountain for the want of a word. So first of all, from a training point of view, I suppose I started out as a young boy that was introduced to the great outdoors through Cubs and Scouts. 
in Donegal, and I absolutely fell in love with uh, Mother Nature. I mean, at seven and eight years of age, to be given a compass, to be allowed to light fires, to be able to camp under the stars, and to be able to, to be taught by leaders uh, in my community of, of how to survive in the bush and, and, and build your own bivouac was just, I mean, it was just an Aladdin's cave for me. And then I took a grip, uh, a very, very deep-rooted grip, John, and, and I climbed all of the Irish mountains. I climbed Carindool when I was 15 years of age. I spent nine days on the mountain um, down in Kerry. Um, I just uh, fell in love with it. And then I w- at 16, I went over to uh, I went over to Glasgow, and I've never spoken about this to anybody. This is probably the first time I've ever spoken about this. I went over to Glasgow, and, and I walked the, the West Highland Way at 16 years of age with a backpack on me. Uh, and I spent 10 days uh, uh, hiking to Fort William and sleeping under the stars and, and in the valleys. And it was just the most magical journey in my life. And and then, you know, I'd kind of, you know, my apprenticeship was kind of all the Irish, English, Scottish mountains, you know, in Wales. And, and then I got the first opportunity to take on a big boy, which was in France. Uh, I got a chance to go over to to Mont Blanc and I, I flew over myself and, and I got the Sham Express into Chamonix and uh, I couldn't afford I couldn't afford to stay in the, the, the Bothies uh, on the mountain. So I I um I was a pretty fit athlete and I decided that I would go from the bottom to the summit in one push and I did. Uh, so I started at the bottom of, of Mont Blanc at the very, very bottom, right down at the road, and I headed off and um um, about six o'clock the following morning, I summited Mont Blanc. I went, I'd done a straight push to the summit and I came back down again and I had tea in uh, Goutier hut on the way back down again. And the French mountaineers thought I was crazy and I had no guide with me, couldn't afford a guide. And uh, I suppose growing up in Donegal and, and, and having that baptism of a fire, um, you know, that I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say cockiness, but I would say the, the capability and the confidence was in me to keep pushing. And I knew I was a good athlete. So from there, I, I want, you know, that baptism into the highest, one of the highest mountains in Europe, just fueled a bigger engine inside me. And and uh, I was probably struggling, you know, I've, I've made this very public. I was probably struggling with the youthful depression back then um, as a young boy. And, and I didn't really know how to handle that. And uh, I don't think Ireland as a, as a country in the late 80s and early 90s was, was equipped for it either. And, and my only therapy came through mountaineering. My only therapy came through endurance sport, uh, whether I was running in the mountains or on my bicycle or, or climbing. Uh, that's the only way I made peace. And, and I suppose I befriended the, the greatest gift on the planet, which was Mother Nature. And, and then I decided then I would go to Italy and Switzerland and, and really start to hone my craft. And I became an ice climber and I learned how to... Um, how to do rescue work, and I spent a huge amount of time in there uh, on on ice walls, just learning the craft of how to climb ice and and the technical approach to to mountaineering, uh, tying off all the knots and and everything involved in it, and uh, and more importantly, how I could self manage myself uh, if I got into trouble, which is probably the most critical component of mountaineering, being able to being able to be able to be self arrested in your own capability. So from there, John, that was kind of like my preparation. And alongside that, I was an endurance athlete. Um, I was introduced to the bicycle at, uh, I was about 14 years of age. Um, my daddy introduced me to, to cycling, um, but I was also introduced to judo uh, when I was eight. Um, 
which is a whole different subject that I've never, ever spoken about. My daddy was my sensei initially starting out and I competed in judo for 21 years. Um, I became a second dan in, in, in judo and in reflection, you know, and I've never really reflected on that part of my life very much, but it, it, it was such a catalyst in developing who I was as, a, as an individual. Yeah, we spoke about judo the last day we were talking and I think that in martial arts, especially those martial arts that have strong tradition, they do prepare you for life and especially with a martial art like judo where you spend a lot of time on the floor so you have to keep getting up. So you, it teaches you how to hit the ground without hurting yourself and more importantly, it teaches you to keep getting back up again. And as we mentioned the other day, Martial artists, when you want to progress in the martial arts, you have to learn how to pass on what you know. So that creates a better understanding of it. If you want to become a, a guy coach, you just turn up and you offer yourself as a volunteer and you might do some kind of course. I'm not knocking that because we need these people, but you can't just go in and volunteer to teach a martial arts class. You have to have served the apprenticeship so I wonder did you take that same kind of philosophy that you had got through the martial arts and bring that across to your cycling and to your mountaineering that you a martial artist I think can be very coachable can be can listen yeah it's probably an area we've never discussed before it's probably an area I've never discussed before um there's no doubt the 21 years starting out as a judo player you know and, and what's what's in reflection unconsciously um it definitely created that um, apprenticeship culture within Jason Black. And, you know, starting out as a white belt and then going to your yellow, going to your green, going to your blue, going to your brown, and then going to your black belt, and then uh, starting your dance is a very methodical way to grow as, as a, and the understanding of the martial arts. And what martial arts teaches you for me, and I think it was probably in reflection, probably the greatest gift was discipline. It was the respect to um, just keep getting up and to respect the fact that um, stay in your lane. You, you you are just a white belt and that you have to earn the yellow and the green, the blue, the brown and the black. And I also think it taught me, John, very much the admiration for people ahead of me that had achieved so much in their sport. So whenever whenever we, we bow on the mat, the black belts are black belts and you respect them for for not because they're great fighters, because the fact that they've gone through the apprenticeship ahead of you and they are have a deeper understanding and learning. But whenever I turned that around, the black belts were the people that taught us. So I think I just, I, you know, again, I've never spoken about this, but I think that judo has probably, you know, I, I talk about my scouting background, I talk about my cycling background, but I don't ever talk about my judo background. And I think in reflection, it was a missed, it was a missed, um, conversation in the past and I think it probably set me up uh, from a from a discipline point of view from the fact that get knocked down get back up again and and learn and, and keep pushing and keep pushing and keep honing and keep honing that craft and the technique get the technique and while it's rough at the start keep honing it and honing it and honing it and you'll eventually be very proficient at it and that's exactly what it's like as a mountaineer you know and I think you know when we get then to the conversation about Everest you know, what I experienced was when I got ready for Everest, which took me, I suppose, from when I achieved my first 6,000 metre mountain in Nepal, then I could see Everest was a reality. 
and it took me eight years to get from my from eight thousand meters to sorry six thousand meters to eight thousand meters in preparation. And I was still learning the craft of what I needed to galvanize in order to be successful. But what I did witness, John, was I witnessed the, at the peril of the mountain. Um, and unfortunately, we've seen the tragedies in the last recent years where money and greed has has kind of ruined the title of Everest Summit here for a lot of people because it's turned into this huge uh, commercial machine. And on the south side of, um, sorry, the south side on Nepal side, there's certain companies has turned the, the expedition into a commercial machine. So people with a wealth of money can pay an extortionate amount of money. And for me, it was the bastardization of the people, uh, the porters, the Sherpa and the environment, because the people were leaving oxygen bottles behind them. They were leaving garbage behind them. And all this was flowing down the Kombu into these very critical and important regions that didn't have uh, didn't have the way with all to, to, um, to deal with this exploitation. So I seen it at its at its at its roughest point, and for me, it, when I was climbing up through Camp One and Camp Two and learning what it was like to climb through the icefall, and it was year one. Next year, then I got to Camp Two, and I was learning what it was like to climb at altitude, and and this went on for eight years. And then said, look, if I was going to climb K2, it was because I, I was a purist mountaineer. I was a purist with Mother Nature. And I have so much respect for her because she saved my bacon in an earlier life. Um, she was the one that kept me safe. And I wasn't prepared to sign up to this um, bastardization. So I decided to go to the north side and, and take on the north face of Mount Everest, which was a very different proposition. And uh, and I'm just glad I did, you know. And, and, you know, the question you asked, how do you prepare you know, it's like life. There's no right way and there's no wrong way. It was just my way. And I know that I made loads of mistakes along the way. Uh, would I change how I approached my mountaineering life? No. Um, you know, I think it's it's part of the journey. I know it's the word journey has been used a lot at the minute, but that is the fact. But yeah, look, um, you know, some people, I for me, the apprenticeship for my, forever started when I was seven years of age, you know, and um uh, I, I've often said this to people that I was given a compass at seven years of age, John, a, a little silver, Sylvia compass. And I stood on the summit of K2 with it last year with it in my hand, you know, and to be 49 years of age, well, 48 then, but 48 years of age to stand on the summit of the greatest mountain in the world and have the compass that you were given in your hand at seven years of age. I think that kind of tells you the apprenticeship that I went through um, to get there. Yes, most definitely. And what did you use as a yardstick measure to determine if you would be capable of such a climb? I think in climbing, sometimes people look around at others and say, well, I've climbed with him and he managed to do it, so why couldn't I? Would using other people's success and failure as a way of judging your own abilities, uh, sometimes, I suppose, it's out of respect and, and acknowledging the experience of others, but would you use somebody else's ability to measure your own or do you solely rely on yourself? That's a great question. And you answered it there, respect. It's not respect for others, it's respect for the mountain. Um, I think I think as a, as a purist mountaineer or as a purist endurance athlete or as a purist athlete, when you respect, when you respect the culture that you come from, when you respect the sport that you're participating in, when you respect the environment that, that you're graced to be there on. And for me, you know, I think earlier on, I, I really realized that I was a very small fish in a big sea. 
and and the mountain was really the boss and that I was just a privileged person to be there and and I think that was what really um, made this my I think that's what really made me successful I suppose if you want to give it a title as a mountaineer is that I had the patience to to wait and I had the gratitude to to realize that whenever the mountain was on it was on and I had permission to get up and when it wasn't on I had the I had the 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 wisdom um and the charisma to listen to the mountain and say look it's not on today I suppose John I've had more I've had more turnarounds and and setbacks as an athlete than I've had success um but there's no doubt that all those setbacks uh, have have definitely fueled me for who I am today um yeah look when are you ready I, I don't know it's just you know you just know when you're ready you know it's it's a very it's a very fine line we walk um I don't know are you ever ready for k2 are you like I mean look we've seen we've seen the k2 winter ascent this this just passed I mean three of the greatest mountaineers you know so three people that I high in, hold in high esteem one I climbed with in 2018 um perished at the bottleneck and uh, they just got it wrong when are you ready yeah there's you a, know, de- a degree of luck there as well isn't there things going right when in the you day. make your luck yeah you make your luck um you make your luck and and but you dance the dance john yeah. and you know it's an unflavorable conversation to have with a lot of people because they don't want to hear the reality of what it's like they like to hear the gloss and the and the the the, the sheen of, of so much success but it doesn't come with, with just all that uh, bling. It comes with a lot of <laughs> it comes with a lot of tragedy at the same time, and 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 sadly, I've witnessed it. And you know, myself and Noel are great friends, and, and Noel has Noel's witnessed it firsthand as well. So, but you know, you use that negative experience to 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 ground you and to realize that you are just just a human being, and and the fact is that, and we're just living off permission to be there. And, um, you know, I've said to you before, John, I've heard people use the word conquer. I've conquered Everest. I've conquered K2. I've conquered this. I've conquered that. You don't conquer anything. You know, you just, you, you've, you've just survived it. And that's it. And, and Everest for me isn't a, or K2 or anything I do, John, and I'm sure you're the same. It's not a chest beating experience. I don't think I'm better than anybody else. It doesn't give me the autonomy to look down or, or, or to talk down to anybody. It just gives me the courage to speak about and to show through my actions that it's all possible and that uh, we shouldn't set limits. Um, when you've experienced death and witnessed that and then you come to a point where decisions have to be made and you know that that is something that has to be factored in, does the memory of that cloud your judgment when you have to be razor sharp with your focus? Yeah, well, you have to be razor sharp. I can tell you that. You but know, if your if your if your mind is clouded from experience, yeah, I'll 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 summarize that. That's where the apprenticeship is, and yeah. and sadly, John, this is where we're seeing the people that are perishing on these mountains. Is that they're coming in with a with a, an attitude, and that they want to summit the greatest mountains in the world, but they haven't the apprenticeship learned or, or developed, and. Yes, they have the physical capability to be strong enough to get there. They may have picked up the technical skills required to to master a certain section at a moment in time. 
But what happens when the wheels come off the cart? What happens when you're hit with an avalanche? What happens when you're at 8,000 meters and I recorded 14% oxygen in my bloodstream? You know, what happens when, when things go wrong and you, you, you know, you, you turn around and you realize that the, the Sherpa is as, is as bollocks as you are because he's human at the same time. And, and all of a sudden, you know, it's down to you as a human being to survive. It's then that the apprenticeship becomes critically important. It's then that you've developed the mental skill set and you've developed a, a, your own personal ability um, to be able to deal with the, the good, the bad and the ugly of, of endurance. Um, and certainly a big mountain where you know that there's no helicopter coming to get you. You know that there's no phone call you can make. You know that there's no mountaineer that can save you. And um, it's at that moment in time, the 25 or 30 years that you've invested in yourself all become critically important. And for those that haven't invested that time in themselves, their sport, and hadn't paid, paid homage to it and, and respect, then that's why we're seeing the tragedies. And unfortunately, uh, it's the mountain that's been blamed. And it's got nothing to do with the mountain. The mountain hasn't changed. It's, it's, it's the approach and the attitude um, as mountaineers or as athletes that we need to take in, in, in relation to survival. And having climbed all around the world, do you find that there might be less of an attitude with the climbers on K2, that they're more focused and pure what to do? Yeah, absolutely. K2 is K2. I mean, the best in the world are the only people that generally survive K2. Um, I, there's a lot of mountaineers over the last couple of years. Um, there's one expedition company that has tried to put a, a commercial tag uh, to climbing K2. Um, but sadly, this this winter we've seen the, the we've seen the effects of that. K two will never be a, a commercial mountain. It starts steep and it finishes steep. There's nowhere to hide on K two. If anything goes on K two, you're getting you're getting you're getting a, a, a town size avalanche coming your direction. And I seen it firsthand in 2015. I was at 8,000 meters and the mountain let go and it took out. I took out everything. It took out all our stoves. Uh, no was with me. Our, our, all our gear was gone. Um, there was a climber lost who died. And uh, all, we, all we got away with on that day was just our helmets and, and the gear that we were wearing. And, and we were blessed to survive it. So when you see it firsthand, it's real. It's not just this conversation. Um, and, and, you know, climbing one of these giants, and I mean, they are giants. I mean, I'll be honest with you, John, like you'd have to be there to, to believe how big this thing is. Like it's not, you know, when you see a mountain in Europe, you think, wow, that's big. When you see a mountain in Nepal and you see in the Himalayas, you see K2 or Everest, Manasalu, Chaoyu, you know, Island Peak. And you see any of these big boys, holy sweet Jesus, you're, you're sweet. You're looking at them and you think, you know, and I'm a very seasoned athlete. I still look at it going, Sweet mother of Jesus, how am I going to climb this thing? Because it is the it's it's the jack and the beanstalk. It just disappears into the clouds, and and the summit's up there in the distance. And you know, if you're if you're going to step into this thing, into that into that gladiators arena, you better be ready because you're in for one hell of a fight. Well, you mentioned the best in the world, but in a lot of cases they're still strangers. So, how do you feel about climbing with strangers, knowing that? the decisions of these people on the day could be the difference between life and death. Like trusting your life to a fixed rope that somebody else has put in is 
trusting your life to, to the stranger that put it in. Does that go through your head or do you just get on with it? Yeah, look, in 2015, I, I went to K2 and I went on a an ad hoc team that I had never really climbed with before. I climbed with two of the climbers. Sadly, you know, um, I got an opportunity to see, I, I suppose, you know, climbers that, you know, they were still very committed, but I didn't, I didn't have the balance with them. I didn't have that yin and yang with them. There was still that division. Um, you know, as mountaineers, we, you know, 8,000 meter mountaineers are a very rare breed. You know, we, we come from a very small community. We're scattered globally around the world, but we all know who we are. We all know the guys that take on the big boys. We all know who, who each other is and we all follow each other and we are generally in contact with each other. So when I walked away in 2015, I, I knew that I had to, I knew in order to be successful on K2, I had to have the heartbeat of, of my team. And um, when I left K2 in 2015 on the way out, I spent four days trekking out. Uh, it took it takes about six or seven days to get out of K2 base camp. It's so remote in the Baltero Glacier. Um, when I when I was trekking out, I um, I teamed up with Gareth Madison, who's one of the world's most accomplished uh, leaders in mountaineering and a wonderful mountaineer, absolute gent, and talk about a technician. Um, and um, he said that he was going to put a team to go back in again and would I be interested? And he liked me and he liked the way I climbed. Um, he, I suppose I liked the way he was a very humble individual. And uh, we kept in touch and, and Gareth then put a team together for 2018. There were six very absolutely animal climbers. Handpicked. Handpicked by Gareth and uh, he handpicked them. And uh, one girl, Lisa, probably one of the top five uh, lady mountaineers in the world and um, and the others were were exceptional um, we all knew each other uh, some of us had climbed together um, the the Sherpa team that was selected was all handpicked I claimed my Sherpa uh, support was Alan Fubar uh, who's Nepalese one of the greatest mountaineers young guy um, super intelligent super confident but very grounded uh, in his approach um, so I was delighted to climb with him I climbed with him uh, twice before so the hand handpick approach, um, certainly without doubt, was was the reason why we were successful in 2018. And just let me just put a wee quick one in there, just to show you how how it can go absolutely tits up. One of the climbers with us, Dan, brilliant climber, absolutely incredible athlete. We were in uh, Camp Four. There's no such thing as Camp Four. We're at Camp Four, which is the highest physical camp before we push for the summit. We're at 8,000 metres. And he's chewing, a, he's chewing a, a, a butterscotch sweet to keep the, the dampness in his mouth because at this altitude, everything's dry and we're, we're on assisted oxygen from time to time. So it's drying everything. The air is so dry. Our oxygen levels are so low. So he bit the sweet and he cracked the edge of his tooth and he bared one of his nerves. That was it. Game over. So this guy had spent two months climbing, preparing, putting in camp one, going back down again to uh, base camp with her team, getting recovered back to camp two after a couple of weeks, getting all the gear brought up, the ropes, the food, the gas, the oxygen, getting camp two set up, going back down to base camp, getting recovered, going back up to camp one, camp two, establishing camp three, and then eventually get to camp four. We get the weather window. We know that there's probably two days, and there only was, there was only two days out of the whole 365 days in the year that the jet stream raised up. And it was possible to push for the summit. 
nobody knows that. Everybody just expects the summit to be the summit. They don't realize that it's this very, very shallow number, a window. And if you're not there at the right time, and the fact is he broke his tooth, he had to turn around and go back down again. And just heartbreak hotel to spend two months with somebody and just to see how it can all just end at the, at the mercy of one suite. That'd be a horrible way to end an expedition. And I suppose that would affect the morale of everyone around them. Yeah. Speed is important the longer you are on the climb and the longer in the danger zone. So someone slow is putting everyone in danger. So let's talk about something else that you have done that's I suppose, part of the whole story here. In 2020, you took part in Ultimate Hell Week. And that's mm-hmm. something that's been on for, for a few years. So this wasn't the first running, uh, first episode of four series. And there's a bridge jump in it where you have to face your fear. And anybody who would have signed up for this would have watched the show and they know that the bridge jump is part of it. But it's only when you're exposed to risk that you actually have to face your fear. And in the episode that you were on, the first guy in the line wasn't able to jump off the bridge. And he knew before he went into it, that's what we'd have to do. And fear is contagious. With him delaying things, it's... It's making other people fearful. And then he was sent sent to the back and he didn't jump. So when you're on a climb and it comes to a point where, you know, it's it's almost a point of no return that you, well, when I say no return, that you kind of, you can either go back down or if you start going forward, that you're going to have to keep going back. How do you deal in those situations? Like, I think fear can cause hesitation, as I mentioned, in the cloud of mind. And you have said in an interview that I've never been more frightened in my entire life climbing up the bottleneck. Yeah. How do you conquer that fear to keep going? Again, there's where the apprenticeship of life comes in. Um, you know, uh, Ultimate Hell Week, you know, I, I, like most people, you think Ultimate Hell Week is a TV program. It is far from a TV program. I suppose um, we're seeing the edited part of it as well. So in fairness, we don't yeah, know everything that's going on. It is so real. It is unbelievable. Like the minute you enter in, it is you're in a vacuum and the rest of the world disappears and you enter into the world of special forces. And, you know, I suppose, why did I do it? I wanted to get an opportunity to see inside special forces and what it was like. And, you know, I left it with so much respect for these guys. I mean, we only got an opportunity to see, to get a window into their world for a very short period of time, two weeks. If this is how they live their life. Wow. Incredible. And, and even just, you know, during the show, I mean, the girl that was sitting beside me and the bus on the way to the camp, we left City West and we're, we're heading towards we're heading towards the, the Wicklow Mountains. And all of a sudden, the DS stands out in the middle of the road, stone cold, white face. He stands there for 15 minutes and he never moves. And you're there in the bus and you're sitting wondering what the hell's going on. And all of a sudden, the bus door opens and, uh, and the bus is stormed with these troops. And um, guns and everything else, and you're off and on 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 the, on the deck of the of a, a wet mountain and, and a heartbeat. And Mary, the girl that was sitting beside me, had just flown in from Miami. She had spent uh, two months training with the Gracie brothers as a martial artist. She was a black belt and and a very efficient uh, and proficient uh, artist in her own right. And it was an example of of somebody that was just plucked out of their their in their comfortable environment uh, as it was and been so. So exposed to uncomfortable or to an environment that they weren't naturalized in and uh, found herself in the river doing press ups for 20 minutes, uh, freezing cold. And, and within and within half an hour, she was gone. And, and that just happened on, on a domino effect for the next two days. They just were able to 
bring people from their normal, um, I wouldn't say comfortable because everybody there was all highly, uh, highly high performance individuals in their own right, coming from their own backgrounds, but because they were plucked from that background and exposed to something completely different and alien, it just threw them sideways. And I suppose I actually enjoyed that side of it. I loved the fact that we were placed in, in the environment of being so uncomfortable because for me, it kind of mimicked my world as a mountaineer because when I'm climbing, every day is different. Every environment's different. Sitting in a tent for two weeks on your own, nobody to speak to. That's um, your holidays. Because well, that's well, you could, because because you're waiting on a weather window, because you're caught in a storm, because you can't move, because you're trapped. Um, and and your, only, your, only, your only dialogue is because all the toys are gone, social media's gone, Instagram's gone. There's no there's no Wi-Fi. All you have is a book in yourself, and and a little bit of music in your mind, and um, and 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 that's what that's what toughens you. That having to having to survive like that, and that's why I'm probably doing great over COVID because I'm 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 loving COVID. I mean I'm I'm enjoying the solitude. I'm enjoying the fact that everything's been re- reduced to ground ground zero and snail's pace because it reminds me of what it's like in the mountain and I'm in that storm at the minute where I'm having to have the patience to wait in my tent like COVID waiting for the storm to pass before I can move again um, and it's an opportunity to plan and plot and and um, and, and get ready and, uh, and 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 that's why you know I, I broke two ribs in the in the combat section in um, special forces uh, and it was full on. I mean, it was absolutely bananas, like full on, twenty four seven, no sleep, very little food, you know, pot noodles, um, and then beat the living daylights out of each other. Uh, and you must remember what you see on TV is we're very, very, very tired at this point. And then they're standing us in in the middle of the in the middle of some bridge somewhere in Ireland. Um, you know, we first of all before we get to the bridge. They put us on a bus with all windows blackened out and they drove us around the M50 for four hours. And we thought we were on a bus for four hours going somewhere. And all we were doing is driving up and down the M50. They were completely disorientating us in our brain. And then they took us to a bridge somewhere. Um, and the jump, all you could hear was was whenever they, they DS jumped, all you could hear was the emptiness from when he left to when he entered the water. And your mind was just lit up the went. Sweet Jesus. And then Adam got up, who was first. And I mean, this guy's a very proficient athlete, you know, fucking serious operator. And he just buckled, absolutely buckled. Face into and fear. It, it sent the face on fear. And it just sent this ripple effect down through each and every one of us. And we're there and we are shaking in our boots. And I mean, absolutely shaking in our boots. And you're wooing him on to please jump. And then eventually then he's taken down. And then you're up next. And you're up next. And you're up next. And, and, you know, they, you asked the point about, you know, what do you instill? You know, it was about getting the first jump done because the other two jumps that came after it were a piece of cake because what you were able to do is you were able to just put in the positive autopilot that you were able to do it and you survived it and you can do it again. And I suppose when we go to the mountain, John, that's exactly what it's like to climb a mountain. Have you ever experienced that with somebody being hesitant that's ahead of you and actually slowing things down? Well, two, I've experienced the person being hesitant to the point that they, they absolutely were going to uh, cause harm and also the opposite, somebody that was so 
so fo- so committed um, that they had summit fever and they just pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed till they killed themselves. And and uh, if you were foolish enough to go with them, you were in the, on the same you were on the same trajectory. And um, so I've seen I've seen both. And the key is to find the balance. And and you know the elephant in the room in this whole conversation is the apprenticeship. The word that you started the interview with. You know, with a proper apprenticeship in life, with a proper apprenticeship in a marriage, with a proper apprenticeship in, in, in sport and learning and running and, and mountaineering, mountain biking, whatever it is. If you have the patience and the charisma and the, and the drive and the respect and the humbleness uh, to listen to your sport, to listen to the environment, to listen to yourself, uh, and, and you'll avoid the mistakes. You'll avoid the, the, the death because people have said, Jesus, Jesus, you're so lucky to have survived. Luck didn't play its part. What played its part was my preparation. I prepared meticulously. Like my physical preparation was brilliant. My technical preparation was brilliant. And my mental state, my mental strength was at an all-time high going in. So I was ready to survive. Yes, was there parts of the jigsaw puzzle I couldn't control? Absolutely. What happens if something goes above me? What happens if, if you know, you said earlier on, um, I was absolutely terrified I was. Um, and I'll paint you that picture. The bottleneck is this very committed root um, in underneath a Serac. And the Serac is without doubt probably somewhere between seven and 10 times the size of 10 cathedrals put together. And it sits there right above your head in the stratosphere at 8,000 meters. And you can hear it cracking. You can hear it making loads of noises and you're climbing right up underneath it. And then when you get to the point where you can't climb any higher, you've got to traverse around the side of it. And at all times, you're absolutely shitting it, um, as ever, even as a seasoned athlete. And when you go to traverse around the side, John, it's toe-to-toe. It's literally, it's a one-foot one walk. And on your left-hand side is 2,000 metres of a vertical drop. And on your right-hand side is a stirac the size of 12 cathedrals, and your shoulder is frozen cold because you have that much fear in you that you're pushing in because you don't want to even engage in what's going on here. And then a Japanese climber, he falls to his death in front of us. And, um, you know, to see, a, to see a guy fall right in front of you and, and, and to perish at that moment in time, you know, you're calling on everything in your, in your world, everything in your, in your every fiber in your body to stay committed, to stay going, um, you know, to not allow that fear to, to seep in and to to make you uh, unnatural in your movement. And um, you're just grasping and all that. And again, you're trying to do that in a very alien environment. I mean, who, who, you don't get a chance to practice 8,000 meters. You don't get a chance to practice 14% oxygen. You don't get a practice at minus 30 degrees where your dexterity and your hands are just crippling to the point that you can literally just screw your your carabiner um you know your your mask is completely choked with with um with the saliva that's coming out of your mouth that's getting frozen and you're trying to break the ice off the inside of your nose is torn to shreds with um frostbite and the goggles are are steaming up that you can you're just cleaning these little circles to see out Uh, and you're trying to do this uh, and and i've painted a very eerie picture but that's that's what it's like and and then and then it gets better as you get to the summit but you've got to climb through the storms in order to get to the top but that's life 
And what you've described there, the bottleneck, is still technically the easiest and fastest route to the summit. And because of that, most climbers choose to use it to minimise the time required to spend above 8,000 metres, which is the death zone. And I think yep. 13 out of the last 14 fatalities on K2 have occurred either at or near the bottleneck. And as you said, you've witnessed yeah, one of them. May, it may not be the most technical part, but it's it's definitely the most dangerous part. You know, Jared McDonald lost his life to it in 2008. It was the piece of the Serac. The mountain itself is just so hazardous that that seems to be the, the most popular route. There is very technical sections in it, like House Chimney is a very technical section where it's 100 metres of a vertical climb at 7,500 metres with virtually no oxygen. You're climbing this kind of chimney effect straight up uh, and then you pop out at the top and then you've got to go up Black Pyramid, which is this big round um, section. And it's just Have you had to down climb that then on the way back? Yeah, you have to down climb it all the way back. Right. See, what people don't realise, when, when you're at the top, you're only halfway. Yeah, you're, you're, there's no guarantee. You're, 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 there's no guarantee you're getting off this thing. I mean, that picture behind my shoulder is the summit of K2. You look at look, you're looking in. Yeah, look at look, you're looking into the world. It is, it's bananas. Like it is, it's one of those places you need to be there to believe it. I'll take your word for it. But if you're going to stand there, you better be able to get out of there. Yeah, that is the difference. That is what K2 is, and there's no, and to get down is as difficult as to get up, and and then the way down. When I was climbing back down again, there was a, a Chinese girl um, on her way up and um, she ran out of oxygen uh, just below the shoulder, which is at um, just above 8,000 metres. And uh, she was completely, and I have it all recorded in GoPro. I, I've never shared it. And, and I'm pleading with her not to unhook. She had completely lost her comprehension in her mind and she was just about to, to unhook. She had no oxygen left. And uh, myself and Alan Fulbar, um we, we saved her life um, and I, I was screaming at her, nothing very proud about it, but she was just about to unclip and uh, I was on a very, very vertical section just below we got to the shoulder and uh, we saved her life. And uh, yeah, K2 is not one to mess with. Would I go back? I don't think I ever would, John. It's, 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 no, it's somewhere I don't ever, <laughs> it's, I don't ever want to see it again. Uh, that sounds terrible, but um, it's a one trick pony for me. I'd have to wonder what it must be like actually reaching the summit and taking those few final steps to actually stand on the high point when you know from experience that getting there was probably the easy hard part as you know you have to get back down and each footstep you take forward is adding to the fatigue, it's eating into your time and then down climbing when you don't really know where you're putting your foot. How do you return from that? When you leave camp four, it's 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 probably twenty eight hours committed. You know, it's you know, and you probably have an app in two days properly because when you're in the death zone, your body is switched off the digestive system because uh, the body's made the very conscious decision that it's going to save the, the the little to no oxygen that's available to go to the vital organs. So your digestive system shutting down, so your energy levels are just disappearing in front of you. Um, you're on this final push, which is 28 hours long, but you've you've already pushed from base camp up to camp four, um, and you're you're living off noodles because that's about all you can handle. Um, you, you know the likes of gels and stuff are are solid up there; They're, they can't function. You can't you can't eat any gels, so there's no very little sugar available. That's no water hard. just freezes in. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm a big fan of that. Um, natural natural foods all the way. 
and uh, and then and then you you know you know you get to the summit and I had two emotions in the summit, John. Um, I had a very deep rooted pride pride in myself. You know, I I, I knew what it. I knew what it had taken to get to this bloody place. You know, I I knew the investment in my training and, and my preparation and my sponsors, the people that had put their hand in their pocket and paid hard cash to get me out there to make this happen. And, you know, the gratitude that I had was was over, overwhelming. I, I picked up the, my satellite phone that I had with me and I had I had sellotaped the, the battery to underneath my armpit because it was the warmest part of my body. Um, so I sellotaped the the battery of the satellite phone underneath my el- underneath my my arm here, and I remember zipping up my jacket and getting the getting the battery out, putting it into the satellite phone, and I rang my 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 daughters, and I dedicated the climb to to my four children, you know, just to let them realize that it's all possible. So once I got past that kind of that 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 pride and and the elation of being there, I suppose the reality then kicked in of. Jeremy Donald stood here before. He held the tricolor above his head, and and that tricolor had never got home. And um, I had this kind of real uh, conviction to try to finish his journey. And you know, in 2015, Gertie, Jared's mommy, asked me would I climb with Jared's equipment in 2018, and I did. Um, she invited me down to Limerick, and I never met the people before. And she asked me to climb with some of Jared's equipment that he would keep me safe in the mountain, and I did. And I took that spiritual as I approached to the mountain and, and I climbed very much with Jared McDonald in my heart and I asked him on several occasions to keep me safe, especially beneath the bottleneck. And uh, I realized when he was on the summit that I was there too and he didn't get off it. And I had this over, overwhelming sense of fear come into my body and it, it took me a good a good half hour to kind of, on the way back down, to kind of control that emotion and that anxiety and fear and to kind of settle it all down and just to start to believe. And I, I had to kind of give myself a bit of a pep talk and say, look, Jason, you know, you, you've trained for this. You've been here before and look, you know how to do this. And and I settled all those nerves and, and I silenced that catastrophic mindset that I was having in that moment in time. And I applied the logic and fact and sense that, that I had trained as a mountaineer. I had the apprenticeship there and, and that I could survive it. And I did. I, uh, I used that skill set and that mental strength at that moment in time to settle all the nerves and, and go back to my true movement and, and the true pure mountaineer that I was. And uh, all of a sudden, I, I just started to move like so fluently again on the mountain. As you mentioned, Jeremy MacDonald, Jeremy MacDonald from Limerick was the fourth Irishman to reach the summit. That was in 2008. But he yeah. didn't make the return journey. So he, he goes down as being the, the fourth Irishman. Yeah, he, he's a legend as yeah. well, and, and I'm not using that word because you know, I, I I would want it to be known on this interview. It's a sad story. Yeah, like his his team his team decided to move past mountaineers that were were upside down in ropes and and dying and injured, and and Jared McDonald's Irishness, I believe, uh, you know, made him his human instinct was that he couldn't pass because if he passed and they died, he would have died with them in his mind for the rest of his life, and and I don't doubt that was his mindset, and he chose to cut them down. John and um, and unfortunately a piece of the Serac, the same Serac that that I spoke about a second ago, give way uh, and it came down and it, and it killed them. And um, so yeah, and in 2018 I, I noticed in 15 when I was in there that there was nothing to mark his heroic action. So I got a guy to make me a plaque from the people of Ireland and I placed it proudly uh, with the Irish flag on it in base camp and it'll be there for everybody to to pay homage to. 
to um, a true mountaineer um, that put himself before others. That's not a nice token. Now, in the build-up to climbing a mountain like, like K2, like it's, it's a massive undertaking. You mentioned sponsors and that. The preparation would, in your mind, be going on for years. And then maybe in the year leading up to it, you're probably doing a lot of radio interviews and talking to newspapers and magazines. Like it's, it's a big story. Anyone with any interest in mountaineering will know how big it is. And it's big news. It's a big deal. But when you have got to this, there's that excitement leading up to the climb and then eventually you, you get to the summit and then you start coming back down. I suppose in your mind there's a bit of I suppose sense of achievement but also a sense of relief that you're making your way back down. But then when you come home, in some ways is it gone? Like How do you feel when you have come back down, especially off something as, as, as big as K2? Is it hard coming back to normal life? Yeah, really hard. Yeah, it's something I don't speak about, you know. Um, yeah, look, I suppose, you know, you go through the whole marketing side of a climb because you're you're paying paying back to the sponsors what they're doing, investing in you. And, I was and you're happy and excited. Yeah, you're happy and excited to do that. And it's part of the build-up and everything And then you else. start facing the fear. Then when you're there, you realize, right, this is not a joke. Yeah. You know, this is... This is no, I'm standing on that bridge. And there, yeah, and there is, John, I've developed, you know, this mindset. There is a there is a sense of cutting in a biblical cord because, you know, I am a very I'm a very family man. I mean, I have four beautiful children. I'm I'm very happily married and I come from a very loving and caring community that cares about Jason Black and and yet I still choose to go off and, and put myself in harm's way and, and there is that very much that cutting the cord. I might get I always, I've always left Letter Kenny on the CIE bus to Dublin. Always, I've never ever had anybody drive me to the airport because I don't want to put anybody through the torture of that four-hour drive, um, of those those words. Because you know, you might never see this person again, and and you just, I just want to get on the bus, and and you know, I have whatever crying done. You know, within the first two kilometers, I have it done. And it's over, and then it's 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 game on, and that's what it's like. And I've never discussed this with anybody before. You know, you know, you're sitting in the front seat of the CAE bus, and you're you're crying your eyes out, knowing that you're facing into, into into the lion's mouth, and and you get there, and then you have to be fucking prepared to, you know, you have to be prepared for this thing because this is a fully committed situation. There's no there's no one foot in, one foot out. This is two feet in. And everybody's banking on you coming home. Your family, your friends, your community, they're all banking on you. And and what people don't realize is that not only do you go on expedition, but your family goes on expedition. They're they're living it every day, every minute, every second. You know, and you know, nobody's ever interviewed my wife. You know, can you imagine what that interview's like? You know, what what's it's probably what's one you don't going, want to hear. What's she going through? Yeah, you know. You know, and, and like, there's people going to listen to this interview because I've never spoken like this before and say, Jason, you're, that's suicide what you're doing. But that's that's who I am. That's that's the yeah. life I live. And and is there a right way or wrong way? You ask the question about coming home. Well, I'll paint you a very honest picture. You know, you sit in the mountain for two and a half months, and the only person you speak to is yourself because, you know, after the first two weeks, you've run out of uh, you've run out of conversation with your teammates. There's only so much you can talk about. And then you're generally down to your own thoughts and understandings of life and and whatever books you can you can manage to read and put together and and you, I put some 
I try to journal some thoughts and, and some emotions and and where I am and in, 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 in my mental capacity in, in the climb. And then I get a chance to reflect on my life and and how how humble it's been to to have lived it. And then all of a sudden you're plucked from that world and and I treat them as two different worlds, John. I plucked for that world and I'm I'm set back in this very modern society that's just flooded in social media and it's flooded with emails and it's flooded with pressures and mortgages and and all the challenges of life and and all of a sudden you just you you're sent spinning and if it's successful everybody wants a part of you because the media want to know all about the climb and and in some cases john you're not ready even you haven't processed the climb you haven't even had a chap an opportunity to to lock inside to 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 de- to you know to decompress from the climb and and you know even even after my success it takes me a good year you know a good year to process what's actually happened and i've often listened back to some interviews that i've given very early on from returning from an expedition and i often wonder who that person was because it it wasn't me it was a it was another version of jason black because i hadn't processed the climb and um you know you're there at home and sharon would say is everything okay and you're you you you're kind of yeah i'm okay why what's wrong you're very quiet or you haven't ate very much or you know, you go off training on the bike for maybe an hour, and you find out that you're still training six hours later, and and you're you're somewhere you're somewhere in Donegal, and you've just kept riding this bicycle, or you go for a run, and 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 a five k turns into twenty k, and you just don't realise it. So, yeah, returning from an expedition of that magnitude has its crosses as well. And like, if you talk to Noel or somebody else, they deal with it a different way. We all process it differently. Um. Yeah, I was quite conscious. Yeah, uh, I was quite conscious of that when I was actually trying to connect with you to actually have this talk as well, because I have an understanding of of what that would be like. And you know, you're probably you know saying the same thing over and over again, and it's probably some things that you don't want to be you know talking about. And here we go again. But as you mentioned, that mental toughness and that it's not the here we go again. I yeah. suppose it's damn you, it's damn you, John, because I've never talked about this yeah, before. Because yeah. um. Why I say damn you, John, is because, you know, there's a part of my mind that, that kind of believes that a modern society isn't ready to listen to this yet. Because, you know, when you come back from a climb, it's, you, you tend to just talk about the gloss and you tend to talk about the, the good parts of the climb and you kind of glance over or past the, the, the battles within the climb. Um, because it, as they, 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 they weigh he- heavy on people's conscience uh, and, and it lets people make very unfounded conscious decisions about you reckless decisions about your actions um you know and i'm a big believer in look you know society has judged me for a long time just let me be me and i'm a big believer in letting people find their own um exploration in life and and there's no there's no correct way i suppose society thinks that we should live this very safe and very structured you know roadmap to to life and and I choose to to tear that rule book up John and and throw it out the window and and just experiment with potential and opportunity and see how far this thing can go you know another area I never spoke about I went to the Arctic Circle and I spent I spent nine weeks in there pulling the sled behind me and the only thing I seen was the was was my own tracks and I never spoke to a center you know and and uh it was just it was so magical it was just absolutely magical. And, you know, it's something I encourage people to do, John, is to take time out and check in with themselves because sometimes as a nation, I think we're 
we're, we're constantly invested in, in social media platforms, but we don't really realize and check in with us. Am I okay? Am I on the right road? Am I paddling against the stream of life? Or am I living a very natural life? Or am I adapted? Am I, am I adapting my, my human being to fit into a box that, it, that it, it's not for me? So if you're, if you're living life and you feel like you're a square peg in the round hole, I encourage and implore anybody just to stop and, and, and unwind the, the, the mess and, 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 find, and find a natural way to exist in this world. And it goes back to that earlier question I said, why do we climb? But you don't just climb. And something else you do, as you, as you alluded to there with the cycling, you cycle quite a lot and you hold a couple of records for as far as I'm aware. You've done the race around Ireland, race around Rwanda, Eco Challenge Fiji, which was, I suppose, an adventure race with some cycling. You've done the race across Oman, race across Laos. You've cycled the Transatlantic Way, the North Cape, race across America, race around Ireland. Uh, so, yeah, you, you do a bit of cycling, as you said. That just stems from you started off doing a bit of cycling as, as a teenager and you just kept heading. How do you find time to do it all? Well, let's go back a step first. One one thing you said at the start was was about um, we're all climbing. I suppose one of one of the things I really one of the things that really touched me, John, um, in returning from the mountains was that um, I suppose people don't realise that when I'm in when I'm in these locations, they're very non-commercial and they're very off the beaten path, and I get this incredible opportunity to share time with village people and people in high altitude communities that have absolutely nothing, but they have everything in the sense that they're able to open their home to you and give you the last bit of food that's coming out of their larder and make you feel so welcome and loved. And their gratitude is just incredible um, that you've shared time in their country. And then you give them a few quid just for, for, for putting you up for the night. And it's a game changer to them. So 20 euro to them, it's a life's wages, you know, and it's 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 hard to believe. And then I come home to this world, and we live in this very modern, slick world, and we have we've got everything and more than we need. Yet we're never. You come back from some of these places not feeling good about yourself. Yeah, it gives you a very uh, a better understanding and appreciation of having water coming from a tap, and to yeah. the point where you know you can leave people leaving the tap running and the amount of waste that goes on. Yeah, I've kind of. I've seen some of that. It's humbling, isn't it? Yeah, it's humbling. And, and you know what? They have nothing and they have everything and we have everything and we have nothing. And that's the true fact. And yeah. I, I think I think we need to have a good look at ourselves. And I think COVID has given us the opportunity. But the, the point you asked about, why do I climb? I suppose what I've experienced as well, John, is that I've had the gratitude to meet people in my own community that are climbing a mountain every day. And it is it is it has really knocked me for six. And... You know, I was invested in Jason Black and was only focused on Jason Black for so many years in my personal crusade to um, to to be a successful athlete. And what I what I had missed um, blindly was that there was people claiming bigger claims than I'll ever have to claim in my life. There was people claiming K2 every bloody day, people that were struggling with disability, people that were struggling with suicidal thoughts, people that were struggling with death and loss. And uh, they were doing it with gratitude every day. So it, it just, it was such a grinding effect for me. 
And, and you know, we moved on then to the cycling and the adventure side of Jason Black. You know, and I don't give myself a title. I don't have a title. I'm just, I'm, all I am is the walking epitome of opportunity and potential because there is no journey. There is no, uh, there is no expedition that I can't take on. There is no mountain too high. There is no race too long. There is no start line. There is no finish line. Um, these things are just there to be enjoyed. And they're just the byproduct of exploration. The race itself or the finish line or the event is just the byproduct of me unlocking who I am. And for a long time, I, I John, I, I feared, I, I, I was afraid of failure. I was afraid of disappointment. I was afraid of DNFing. Um, you know, I was afraid of stepping up to a start line unless I was absolutely 100% prepared. Um, you know, unless I was completely committed, I, I, you know, as an athlete and I had all my preparation and all the boxes ticked. And today I don't. Today I just step up and say, let's see. And you know what? I've had more success when I've, when I've, when I've stripped away all the expectations, when I've stripped away all the, what, you know, uh, the, the potential of maybe winning this thing or, or placing, all I've done is just entered and be the best version of myself. And by doing that, I've just stripped away all the, the pressures and all the uh, stresses. And, you know, I was looking at a post that you put up about one of your races for Ireland, the 100-kilometer race, and you said that just before the race, you'd experienced this anxiety. Uh, and that was because you had possibly you know, place so much pressure on yourself. That's it, exactly. And, and and all that pressure created that that pressure cooker and you just exploded. You just couldn't handle it. And what I, I suppose through the apprenticeship of, of endurance, whether it's on the mountain or on the bike or in the mountains, what I realized was when I stripped away from the pressure and, and removed the, the expectation of, of success, then, and I started to flow naturally as a person and as an athlete, and I became so successful. But success didn't come in the form of the medal around my neck. It didn't come in the form of, of the top three at the finish line. It just became um, success for me became the fact that I was just naturally Jason Black. That's a good answer. And we mentioned mental toughness earlier. And I see that's something that you you teach now, isn't it? Mental toughness for athletes and, and sport. How's that going? Yeah, look, I suppose, you know, <laughs> I suppose I get the I get the doubters in life that say, Jason, you don't have a, a degree. <laughs> you don't have a degree to teach this thing. And uh, I, I don't, I suppose I don't have a certificate that I can hang in the wall and say that, look, hey, I've got a degree in, in sports psychology. I don't. But I have a degree in, in, in the life of sport psychology because I live it and I walk it every day of my life. Um, and it's it's carried me through. It's carried me through tough times, John. You know, it's carried, the man it's in the arena. There's very... a big difference between just doing something to to get something to hang on the wall. We we learn by doing. Well, all I, all I am is nothing. All I am is nothing. I I am nothing here today. I am just I am just I'm just an experience. Experience. And, that's and where that's wisdom all, comes from. Yeah, I think all that's all who we all are. We're just this. We're just this ball of experience. And and for me, I think I would be doing. Mother Nature and life and injustice if I didn't share it. Does it mean that I have the credentials to say that I'm the be-all and end-all? No. Does it really matter? No. Uh, what matters is that I have the courage to say, look, this is what I did. It may not be right for you, but this is how I dealt with it. And and it's not even about being an athlete. It's just about surviving life. Because I suppose one of the areas I'd like to speak about uh, very quickly is dream stealers. People, there's too many dream stealers in life out there. People... 
there's there's people out there that don't want to see people do well. Um, they're prepared to measure the gaps in people's lives instead of the gains. And uh, I think, you know, you, you know, as a society, there's no room for that in society. It's another form of bullying. And, uh, you know, asking people, especially our young people in our communities, to try to fit into a box. And, and you know, the box today is made up of this fucking social media. And you may look and dress this way, have this type of car, this type of house, and have this type of language around your life. That's a load of rubbish. You just have the courage to be yourself, walk in your own shoes, uh, and, and being just a natural human being. And and uh, and that doesn't have to have a degree attached to it. Um, mental toughness is something I had to endure as a person. Um, it was galvanized because the, the, the dream stealers wanted to keep the shit out of me and, and knock it out of me. And, and I just wouldn't let it happen. And I'm indebted to my judo years. I'm indebted to my scouting years. I'm indebted to my biking years, my running years, my mountaineering years. But more importantly, I'm indebted to the people that, that, that elevated me, the people that, that, that caught me when I was tumbling through life. And I suppose, you know, I've said this publicly, you know, the greatest gift that I have today isn't my ability as, a, as an athlete. My greatest gift is, is having the ability to, to help others that are struggling in life. And the only way that I can share that is, is through my experience. So no, I don't have a degree, but I have the degree of life and it's more valuable than, than you could imagine. Life lessons. Lessons learned along the way. And I've had some pretty fucking shitty mm. life lessons along the way. I've had, I've, had, I've had some pretty bad knocks in life, but um, that's who I am. Um, did it make me who I am today? No. It just, it just set me on a, on a human compass of life. And, and thankfully, my human compass today isn't based around material things. It's based around exploration. And, and uh, you know, the more than yourself, John, you know, having this opportunity today to just share and and I don't have the secrets to life. I don't think you do. I don't think any of us do. But just by sharing our experiences, good, bad, and indifferent, somebody somewhere listening to this podcast will hopefully get a little bit of nugget of gold. Maybe it's that gold that'll just unlock this incredible journey in life for them. Yeah, hopefully. Do you have a mountain on your mind at the moment? Yeah, I do. I, I've, um, I'm very engaged at the minute um, from a humanitarian perspective. I've, I've, had, I've had the opportunity to share times. In the, I came back from the Congo last year where I was working with six young kids uh, that were caught up in the struggle of the civil war uh, between Uganda, Rwanda and, U- and Burundi. And uh, they were stolen as boy soldiers uh, from their families. And, and we were working with them to get them repatronized back into their, their families again to see that firsthand and, and, and the effects that you're, you're having as a, in, from a humanitarian perspective. Um, I got to meet a guy last year as well who, who got on a rubber dinky um, that left Syria himself and his family. And um, they were trying to find a safe haven somewhere in, in the world. And they got on a rubber dinky, um, half inflated. Um, the oars that they had was water bottles and uh, they set sail and they paddled across uh, the ocean. And uh, he survived and his family died at sea. And uh, his story hit me really hard. And today I'm, I'm embarking on, on a journey myself and uh, please God with my daughters, um, Laura and Kate, uh, to row from Canada um, to Donegal and I have this mental picture myself that Irish people left 
you know, left the Irish shores like the guy that left Syria for 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 a better life somewhere. And uh, there's a little town in in uh, Canada, St John's Point, which is has an Irish speaking culture about it, and it's where the Irish landed. And I want to leave St John's Point in Canada and row to Donegal, five thousand kilometers. Uh, unsupported, um, and I just want to pe- bring people with me on that human journey for 45 days and and uh, share what life's like and to show people that through my actions, not my words, that with every row in life or with every step in life, you get a little bit closer to, to where you want to get to. Is it your finish line? No, because saying it's your finish line means that you're setting a limit. Uh, it just means that you're getting to the next point um, to unlock your next potential. And uh, so that's my next journey. And I, I suppose I just want to be a good person. You know, that means something to me. Um, I have values that I that I live with um, that, that's supported by my behaviors. I, I train very hard, not because I want to be a top class athlete, but just because I want to be a good human being. And I want to be I want to I want to appreciate this human body and mind that I was given and admire it. Um, but, uh, you know, before I leave this world, all I ever want to be reminded, uh, all I ever want to leave behind me was that I'm a good human being and that I, I found the, I left the world a better place than I found it. And and um, I came into the world with nothing and I'll leave it with nothing. Um, the trophies or, or, the, or the mantles of Everest and K2 are just the end result of, of this incredible journey of Jason Black. That is far from finished. That role sounds fantastic and I look forward to following that. But just going back to those stories you mentioned from the Congo and Syria and then thinking back to K2 with witnessing death, do these things scare your mind? Like, Would you ever wake up or thinking about something or do you have trouble sleeping with these on your mind? I'd find it very hard, I think, coming back from that. No, it just is. Um, something I didn't share a lot with people is that I suppose... I, my youthful depression was that bad at one stage in my life that uh, I was going to, to make, commit suicide. And um, it was a very low point for me. And, you know, I suppose that's probably why I owe my life to support or to sport um, and to Mother Nature was because if I didn't have sport in my life at that moment in time when I was tumbling, um, I, I probably couldn't have reconciled uh, with, with the fact that I was going to take my life and, and, cho- and chose to stay. So um, I suppose the whole journey of death has has given me the appreciation for life uh, more so today than ever. And, you know, as I said at the outset, you know, I did say for a long number of years that we only live, we only live once. And if we're going to live once, then surely we should drink from this jug fruitfully and positively. And then I realized, no, we're only going to die once because that's it. But I have the opportunity and I'd be given a second chance to live every day. So does that mean that I don't recklessly go after um, pursuing the next? No, it doesn't. You know, I could, and I know, I know I've said this, you know, when your number's up, it's up. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll stand at those pearly gates whenever that day comes. But um, the way I want to leave the world is, John, is that when they go to put the lid on that box and it's time for Jason Black to check out, I, I want to I want to look up and and to give the thumbs up and say, um, that was a life well lived. Um, put the lid on it. Um, it's my time to leave. 
I want to continue talking, but in some ways that's a good way to end the conversation. What do you think? There is no start line and there is no finish No, there's line. not. There's not. So I could continue and just based on what you've said there, that life experience that you had, it sounds to me like if that those thoughts are going on in your head and something obviously made you hesitate and then you come back with a greater appreciation of life and you then wanted to live and that's what you've been doing and you've been living a very full life and it sounds like you're trying to help others live a life. Yeah, and my life, I suppose I chased the, I chased the pot of gold. I suppose this is all kind of probably indicative of, of, of age and, and experience. But, you know, earlier in, in my life, both as an athlete and as a human being, I, I was chasing a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And, and I felt that it would come with blood, sweat and hard work. And when I would get there, it was going to be filled with this smell and taste. And it was going to be it was going to be filled with elation and it was going to be just this magical experience. And, and then what I experienced was when I got there that it wasn't. And uh, so then I, I just I, I decided that, you know, that I had I had witnessed so much and felt so much. And I'd lost my mother um, when I was 17. Um, which probably was was probably the catalyst, along with other events that happened in an earlier life. Um, it was probably the catalyst to send me spinning through life. And uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't leave, I didn't leave, live the most positive life. I suppose it's it's something I never spoke about either. You know, I did do the the drink, and I didn't do too much drugs, but I definitely dabbled, and I, I'd lost my my human compass. I suppose I had kind of I'd, I'd fallen off the wagon and. And as I said, the only thing that caught me was sport. And uh, I have so much appreciation for it. So, ach, look, there's no right way and wrong way. There's just a way. And, uh, you know, all I can ever do today in the classroom, and, and I suppose that's the greatest summit that I'm standing on today, John, is, is the opportunity to stand in front of young kids and just share a human story that's not coming from a book. It's not, it's not made up. This is real. And... And I don't know, is this, uh, you know, I don't know, is this successful or not, but it's just my story. And, and um, it seems to, it seems to hit home with a lot of people that has dealt with bullying. It's dealt with loss and it's dealt with success and it's dealt with defeat. It's dealt with the knockers of life and it's dealt with society trying to make you fit into a box that you just can't fit into. And because you can't fit into it, you feel like a freak um, and you're made feel like a freak. And um, I suppose my greatest success today probably has the fact that I've survived life and I've survived, I've survived the fact that I didn't fit into anybody's box and I created my own box. And um, I'm very comfortable today in, in that box and who I am. And I there's no lid on it. Speak a lot. There's absolutely no lid on it. I, and I don't speak very much about this. I suppose your, your damn interviews going deeper than I ever would normally ever go, but um I suppose to, to, for people to really understand who Jason Black is, and I'm certainly not the K2 Mountaineer, I'm not the Everest Mountaineer, I'm just Jason Black. I'm just this very ordinary person from a very ordinary community that had two beautiful parents. And uh, I had the highs and lows in life, and, and I made the best out of a bag of Dolly mixtures. Yeah, I think it's important to hear these kind of stories because people just see the success, the standing on the summit, but you don't see what it has taken to get there. All the setbacks, the knockbacks, the hard times, the you know, all that goes on in the background. 
Yeah, look, you know, you know I, when I was 13, like, you know, I, I was going to school, like, and I, I met a bully, like, and he fucking destroyed me as a person, you know, for, for six years. And I had no education whatsoever when I left school. You know, I had no education at all. Like, I don't have a junior cert and I don't have a leaving cert. That's why I don't believe in the degree hanging on the wall. Um, it's not that it does. It's not that I don't admire it. I do admire it, but I don't believe it's the be all and end all. And, uh, and then, you know, from there, I just couldn't get a job because the, the, the bully... The bully was replaced by society because I didn't have the degree or the qualifications. I couldn't get a job anywhere, John. You know, I just couldn't get a, I couldn't get off my knees. I just couldn't get a job anywhere. And um, I was blessed. I've got an opportunity to work and done stores and pack the shelves. And and from there, from there, I just, I just believed in Jason Black. And 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 even though the scars of bullying were there, um, it was brutal. And then I lost my mother, um, to cancer. And, uh, you know, I've spoken about this, you know, a mother in any Irish home is just, is everything. And myself and my brother were at, my brother, I only have one brother, two sisters, and my brother Billy was a better cyclist than I'll ever be. He was, he was the proper athlete in our home. He was just, he was an animal. And um, I was always in Billy's uh, shadows and he was one year younger than me. And uh, yeah, we were out in the motorbikes together and we came around a corner and we got it wrong and, and, and Billy, Billy, Billy died and I was 25, he was 24 and, you know, to see your, to put your brother into the ground was, you know, along with your mother and already you're spinning through life and judged by society and, and you know, when I speak about nature and I speak about the importance of sport, they're not words, the, the, this is life for me, this is, I owe everything to, to sport you know, I just don't do sport just because I want to be a competitive athlete. I do it because that's who I am. The best version of Jason Black exists, not in this modern world. The best version of Jason Black exists whenever you're deep in deep in the trenches of, of endurance. Um, that's when I'm happiest. That's when I'm most comfortable. So, yeah, I suppose whenever you come on to podcasts like this, you, people... people want to talk about the the bling and the bling and the the highs and what did it feel like but uh what's never spoke about is is the journey that you needed to endure to get there but uh, i wouldn't change a thing um life is what it is that's the cards that i was dealt with and i had to we had to make good with that you know when growing up in Donegal in the middle of the countryside um you know as a young boy it was a chest out um, chin up job. There was no, there was definitely no jigsaw. There was definitely no mental health support that there is today. And uh, geez, it was a tough time. Fuck, it was. It was a dark time in my life. And, was, and it was a reminder that you know that's what it was like to be in the gutter of life. You know, and I was able to climb out of the gutter of life. And you know, when I when I stood on the summit of these mountains. You know, when I stand on the summit of these mountains, I'm not standing on the summit of my life. You know, I've survived it. I've survived all the the battles that life gave me. And uh, I had to endure it and I had to climb through the storms and I had to have the patience to wait. And, you know, society was another storm that pushed me back and put me on my knees and then the judo taught me how to get up off my knees again and fight back. 
you know, and that's probably today is the first time I ever spoke about this, you know. Um, that was the fight of life. So, uh, you know. You've been tested. Not a trophy. Yeah, I've been tough. Yeah, it's been it's been a tough test, yeah. But I think we all have a story inside us if we have the courage to reflect. I can see where that strength is coming from, that that mental strength, that, that drive. You know, life has been an endurance event and you kept going. As I listen to some of what you've been saying there, you've all the reasons for wanting to give up. And I think you, like that's a question you've probably been asked in other interviews, but where the times you felt like giving up during a race or during a climb. But I suppose a race around the world is, is, is nothing. A climb is nothing. Like, as you said, when you're, when you're living it, it's almost a way of escaping from reality getting a break from it, because all that all that matters then is the next couple of steps that you're taking the next move you make yeah but i i i didn't give up i didn't give up when i i didn't give up when i wanted to hang myself um so when i didn't give up that day i'm not going to give up now yeah and that was the biggest that was the biggest give up yeah you know and you started. You started living that day. You, you, yeah. The new man. Yeah, I got, I, yeah. I, I, I unconsciously. That's that was my. That was my. I was on the road to somewhere. And uh, you know, today now I have a family, and I'm not going to give up on them. I've got a community, and I'm not going to give up on them. And uh, I've got a purpose. I've got a very deep rooted purpose at the minute, and it's not. It's not the mountains, it's not the summits, it's not the finish lines, it's not the races, it's just to make a difference in other people's lives. And I want people to learn um, that it's all possible. And even with the trials and tribulations of a of a battered life, that you can survive it and, and, and make good and that you can be hugely successful as a human being. And... Uh, and that, and there's no there's no yardstick. And today I just celebrate the gains that I've made in life. I don't I don't I don't prey on the gaps that have that that occurred along the way. And uh, I just really empower people today to just really to really celebrate life and celebrate yeah. success and celebrate each other and and what we have. Yeah. And, and and be grateful for what we have before we ask for more. And and uh, nobody's better than anybody else. And it's just, it's beautiful to be in a world today that women are celebrated at the same level as as men. It's it's wonderful to see that opportunity exists for all. Um, and um, and for those that it doesn't. Our responsibility as human beings is to continue to unlock that, um, whether it's in Palestine, whether it's in Congo at the minute, I could see because they're fighting there at the minute. So, um, but you don't give up. You don't turn your back. You know, the people that helped me these um, and helped me on the, the road to recovery, that first foot on that, ladder of life today it's my opportunity to pay it forward and to reach that arm of hope 
and friendship and loyalty and commitment to others that are struggling. Um, you know, whenever I was to click my fingers and change the world, I would, I would try to get rid of the homelessness. I'd try to get rid of the impoverishment. I would try to exist in the world we have. Um, and something that's to me is mother need to be kind, mother nature. I think John, for the first time ever, we've seen mother nature has played her part in the recovery of COVID. It's kept people sane and safe that are out walking yeah. and running and cycling for the first time ever. And they're now seeing the power of the outdoors. We should be very how critical it is to look after this thing. And uh, we owe Mother Nature to keep it safe. So we we have to change our behaviours after COVID. Yes, well said. Well, well I think we, we, we've gone through quite a lot there. So... I think we'll we'll end it here. That was a, a good ending. So be the best version of yourself. Yeah, and life is a journey. It's full of the unexpected. And there's times you're going to find yourself on your knees and have the courage to get back up and find real purpose in life and ask yourself the question, what's it all about? What's it all about? What's it all? Well, Jason Black, thanks again for your time and Love chatting to you and I think we had a, a great chat as well a couple of nights ago and I kind of wish I had recorded that as well because well, this isn't a repeat of what we were chatting about the other day. Like we were, we went off on a lot of tangents. I think this was a bit more focused or I suppose we went a bit off on a few different tangents here but we kept coming back to what we wanted to say and, and thanks for sharing your story and being so open and honest. Yeah. And uh, thanks for giving me a good interview yeah. because you got the best out of me. And uh, look to everybody that's listening in, um, just live and celebrate every day. And uh, thanks, John, for the opportunity to share. And let's hope there's more opportunities in the future. And the the, the book of Jason Black continues and continues to share. And we don't know where it's yeah. going to end. And can't wait to be back with you again. Yeah, well, there's a few more few more chapters. And I'll catch up with you before you, you do that row. Now, if you enjoyed this or any of the other podcasts, you might consider leaving a review or subscribing or passing on to a friend. Until next time, thank you.